You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In our final lesson of the Revival module, Revival Expectations, Philip Edwards will look at the threats to revival and can we meet more revivals before Jesus comes. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk for all the latest news and to see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. The last two things I want to look at this evening. First, I want to look at retaining a revival once it comes. How should we act? And if we act in an inappropriate way, could we curtail what God is trying to do when he moves with revival power? And, and finally, in, in the last lesson, I want to look at, uh, are we expecting God to move with a revival in these end times? There's sort of two camps within the Christian church. One is that uh, he, he will come with a fantastic revival that will cover the whole world and we'll see just thousands, if not millions, swept into the kingdom. Other people say, no, that's not going to happen, but things are going to wax worse and worse. And when they're so terrible, that's when Jesus returns. So like all of these things that we study, you have to make a decision on what you believe. It's not for anyone to tell you. So there's lots of these doctrines and teachings. They sort of hang in the balance. And you have to come and make the decision which one you believe, which you think is is more probable or possible. Now, the way that Bible teaching is, there are some very good teachers on both sides of every argument. So that's not very helpful because you think, well, these are really clever men and women who study the word and know a lot more than me. And they'll argue one side very strongly. And then someone will come of, of equal uh, you know, intelligence and understanding and he'll argue the, the other side. And so you have to, with the, the, the Spirit's help, just ask him, where am I going on this? What am I going to believe? Where, where are we going on this? Revival then, retaining the results of a revival. We've already said that um, the revival is, is as though God, ever since creation, he's been gathering people together, his people. And in gathering them together, there's been a spiritual struggle. The enemy is opposed all the time when we see all the problems that were the children of Israel had in following God. And then, and then there's other struggles that have been for, well, the, the, the 6,000 years really that God has been working with us, all the struggles that we've had with the enemy and how God is, is working with us against him. One of the names for God is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. And so it would be quite justified to think about uh, revivals as part of a strategy, like a wartime strategy where God makes a real thrust against the enemy and he has a breakthrough, as it were, and many are swept into the kingdom of God, but the enemy presses back. He pushes back against God to close everything down. So 
I think it's wise to, to look upon life as you live it. You are like a soldier enlisted in the army of the Lord. And there is a struggle that's going on, a spiritual struggle between good and evil. We're fighting on God's good side. And yet the evil one seeks to prevail over us and, and close us down. And this is what happens in revival. A revival comes with a great thrust of God's pressure and a great impulse of the spirit of God. But it doesn't take long for the enemy to come and to close everything down if he possibly can. So I'm going to share with you four safeguards that if the revival comes and we're part of a, a tremendous revival of God, how we can conduct ourselves so we make sure that the enemy doesn't close the whole thing down. The first is we must avoid criticism of God's methods and God's instruments. Because God is a supernatural God, he will work in a supernatural way. And revival is God's work. Remember we said evangelism is what man does for God, but revival is what God does for man. God will do what he wants to do, and God will do it through whom he wants to do it. We might have structures and hierarchies within the church or within our denominations, and we would think, well, God would move through these structures. Well, he can do but if he doesn't choose to, then he won't. He'll, he'll just take ordinary folk, as it were, that are not a part of the structure or the hierarchy, and God will powerfully move through them. So we have to be careful that we're not judgmental about the people that he uses or the, 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 the methods that he goes and, and uses. There's a couple of verses of Scripture I just encourage you here. Ephesians 4 and 31 says... Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. So the, this scripture says we've got to get rid of it. So if God starts to do something that you're not comfortable with or you don't understand or you don't expect God to do it, best not to get worked up and angry and resentful about things. Just watch what God is doing quietly. Proverbs 29.22 says... An angry man stirs up dissension, and a hot-tempered man, one commits many sins. But this, this verse really trumps them all. I like this one. It's James 1 and 19. It says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So he says, when things start moving around you and the spirit of God starts doing things that you don't feel particularly comfortable with, don't jump in and make judgments. Just take a step back, watch what's going on, listen carefully and say little. Because it is a scary thing and you wonder, is this really God or is this some sort of demonic manifestation that's going, going on here? And I'm, I'm a bit nervous of what's happening in the church and what people are doing and all this sort of thing. You know, as they, as they come under the power of the spirit, maybe they, they're crying or falling or rolling all over the floor and you think, whoa, hang on now, you've got to step back from this. No, just, just be careful 
because God, like I said, is a supernatural God. We've spoken about in the Welsh Revival a man called Evan Roberts, who he was not a, a, a minister. He was actually training to be a minister, and he just spoke, spoke in small fellowships. And it was through him that the Welsh Revival it, it moved through him. He was really the, the, the spearhead of it, the whole thing. But there was great criticism against him. And the Welsh Revival, although we talk a lot about it, about it, it only lasted about nine months, very short. And this poor man, Evan Roberts, he had a breakdown uh, as, as just a man in his 20s because of all the criticism that came against him and the persecution he, he had to take on board. So very cruel, really. Uh, so, and, and maybe... Maybe the whole revival was cut short because of all the criticism. It was because the established church expected the revival to come through the establishment, but it never. It bypassed them and came through this young man. So we have to be careful, careful that we're not critical or judgmental if revival were to come. Secondly, we have to keep guard of our hearts because perhaps we see others moving on or receiving a blessing and we don't because of our reticence maybe to, to enter in, we, we, we become very arrogant with ourselves. You know, pride, pride is a terrible thing. And pride has, I think, sometimes stifled revival many times. Psalm 139, 23, 24, the psalmist says this, and you'll know it well. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is anything offensive or any offensive way in me and lead me on the way everlasting. So David was really open to God showing him what his, his heart was like. I thought about this thing, pride. Pride is, is really ugly. It's such an ugly and offensive thing. And to think we've got pride, we would be offended. But it's, it's easy to have pride, easier than we think. Now, we don't think we've got it because it is such a terrible, awful thing. Remind you what James said in James 4 and 6. He said, but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So instead of being arrogant when God starts to move, just move with humility. And if God starts to move through people that you didn't expect him to move through, move with humility. Be, be submissive to what God is doing. The church must maintain throughout a revival a real humble and an urgent, believing, praying attitude. I think sometimes when God starts to move with revival, people stop praying for revival. But maybe they should keep praying all the way through so that it's, it's maintained, it's proper, and it's in order. So probably just as important to pray while the revival is happening as you do pray before it. 
A third danger with revival, because it affects our emotions quite a lot, preaching gets pushed to one side, and so does teaching. It all becomes something of an experience, what people are experiencing, because that's what it is. It's the spirit coming close, and people's emotions are really stirred by the whole thing. Evan Roberts said that the there was a great neglect in the Welsh revival of 1904-1906. Uh, too much importance was attached uh, to the experience of people. A service would often be without any structure at all because the Welsh people love to sing and there are some wonderful singers there. They would sing a lot in the meetings. And of course, that was very moving and very passionate. And people would just share their experiences, share their testimonies, share what had been happening to them. And so very often the word of God was not preached. There was no teaching going forth. And they admit now that was a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a mistake. There was no instruction of the converts. I read in the book, uh, there was no catechism. And I thought... What, what on earth is a catechism? Because that's an, that's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? From, from the past, we think, well, what is that? So I, I best look it up for you. It's to instruct in the principles of Christian religion by means of questions and answers. And I think we wouldn't be amiss with that today. We see people converted and coming to Christ, and often they have quite an emotional testimony, and that's fantastic. But they need to be questioned to see if they're growing and developing and, and understanding the things. Recently, I've done with, you, done with you a course on the foundations. And of course, did you know all those foundational teachings or did you learn something? Well, I think these new converts should go through some sort of foundational teaching, some sort of catechism that they're asked questions that they go away and they study what it is they've got so they understand with a real solidness, not simply an, an, an emotional experience because God can come close and we can have an emotional experience, but it doesn't mean that we've repented and been converted. So we have to be a little bit careful with that. There's a danger of that. By contrast, when we examine the Welsh revival of 19, sorry, 1858-1860, there was uh, the preaching maintained was maintained all the way through the revival. So every person who came in as a convert through the revival, he was rigorously examined. He wasn't allowed to join a church until they were fully convinced that this this man or woman had changed significantly within their heart that they desired the things of God. They wanted to be instructed by God that there was, there was holiness in their life and they put the word of God first. In this revival uh, of um, 1858, they, they carried out some surveys and some years later, a good 10 years later or even more, I think it was about the 1890s, they found that of the 20 people that were converted in the revival, 19 of them were still soundly saved after coming in through. And, and I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that they, they, they were taught, they were, uh, 
they went through some instruction, proper instruction, and so they were able to really be sound in their Christian understanding. The fourth safeguard that I have for us is to realize that when God moves powerfully upon a community, upon a church, or even upon a nation, the enemy, as soon as he gets opportunity, will counterattack. He doesn't seem, he doesn't just roll over and walk away and let God get on with what God's doing. Oh no, he has a strategy for closing it down, for, for bringing uh, negative things to, to come out of it. The century of 1815 to 1914 was one of glorious expansion for the Christian church. Protestantism was characterized by an abundant vitality in that hundred years, both home here with um, churches spreading in this nation, but we sent hundreds if not thousands of missionaries abroad in those hundred years. It's never been equaled before or since the amount of evangelism that took place and the change that took place within the church. But what was Satan doing in those hundred years? Well, just listed a few things here. 1830, the Book of Mormons was written. In 1847, Spiritism um, uh, formed a society. Uh, it, it took real structure. Communism, Karl Marx, the first trial volume of Des Capital was written in 1859. Jehovah's Witnesses were founded in 1872. Christian Science was founded in 1875. And Theosophy, which is um, the study of, of ancient wisdom from the East, there was a society set up for that. It was founded in 1878. So although there was a tremendous time of the moving and the power of God and evangelism was fantastic and the church was in its most wonderful day, the enemy was moving all the time to close things down. Of course, the thing that, that finished uh, that evangelistic thrust, because I give you the dates, 1815 to 1914, it was obviously the First World War. Once the First World War started, that whole program of evangelism and that tremendous thrust of the church for those hundred years was simply stopped overnight as the war came. So this was the final thing that finished that century of tremendous evangelism. We must see then revival in the context of a battle, a battle through the ages, for the ages, we must be prepared, if God is going to move with great power, that the enemy is going to come back with tremendous force against the work of God. And we must prepare ourselves for this. In Scripture, if you look at the tremendous moves of God, we see the, the countering of the enemy. When, when the children of Israel were delivered and went through the Red Sea, we see that just a short time after they built the golden calf and started worshipping idols again. When God provided bread or manna in the wilderness, we see a rebellion where God has to slaughter 250 who were taking this rebellion against Moses. 
we know that when God blessed David and David became established, so wealthy and powerful and strong, it was then uh, he became adulterous in his relationship there. And it was as though the enemy just rushed in. Once things were going really well, the enemy broke in to close everything down. Elijah, when he went to Mount Carmel and brought down the fire of God, immediately Jezebel was pursuing him to kill him. So we see this counter all the time, this thrust back from the enemy. We are in a battle. Sometimes it's a battle to get the revival started, a battle to keep it going on, and then a battle to resist the enemy as he seeks to close the movement of God down. We need to pray then. We need to pray not only for revival, but during a revival. I want to move on now to this last lesson. Uh, we're going to probably spend a little bit more time on this. Uh, some of it might sound a little bit like a, a, a church history lesson, but I hope, I hope you'll even be interested in this. It's fascinating to see who and what God has done before in our church. This is our family. The family that we're part of goes back for thousands of years. When God comes for his people, there are going to be people who lived thousands of years ago that worshipped and loved God, lived in different periods and different uh, in a different world from us, but they had that same ingredient of faith and belief and trusting in God. So through the, the 20 centuries that have passed since Jesus came as, as an infant and, and grew up amongst us, the church has enjoyed many, many revivals. I think I mentioned it last time I spoke to you. About 150 at least have been recorded as genuine revivals. Impulses from God to move the church forward. Uh, and, and each movement has involved a number of revivals. So I'm going to be talking about a movement, the movement of God and in the movement, there are these revivals. Some of them are very clearly revivals, and some of them are just God moving powerfully in evangelistic ways. But we're going to see and understand something of the thrust of what God is doing and what he's done for several thousands of years. The first question is, can we expect, if I call them a movement, and a movement has a number of revivals in it can we expect i will explain to you we've had four movements already can we expect a fifth movement before jesus returns a tremendous thrusting forward to bring about the culmination of all things will it be if we have one will it be the greatest of all movements with the greatest number of revivals. So I'm not talking about one revival. I'm talking about before Jesus comes, will he move with a final, a final movement forward and we will see many revivals throughout the world. Will the revivals that God brings, will they be worldwide? Will they touch every nation in these last days? And when might this happen? And has it already started? 
has the final movement of God in the church already started? Like I said, it's a bit of a history lesson, but you'll understand as I move through this, what I mean by these movements. And as you look back through church history, you'll say, oh, I see clearly now what God is doing. The first movement, um, it, it came um, shortly after the Battle of Hastings, actually, uh, from about the year 500 to the time of the Battle of Hastings was a very dark period. It's called the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages. It seemed that Christianity was completely crushed and it had to go into hiding a very sort of monastic way that it, it managed and survived. But then we see soon after the Battle of Hastings. So I think the Norman Conquest was a good thing. Now, I know we're British and all that. We want to win everything. But actually, the Norman Conquest brought a lot of enhanced Christianity and a whole different way of living to our country. So God actually did us a big favor through, through that invasion and conquest. Soon after that, though, we see move of the first movement of God, which we call the Reformation. The, Ref, the Reformation, let's look at some of the the characters, the personalities that God raised up in this time. The first one I want to mention to you, and if you've got the notes, they're just listed there. I'll just tell you a little bit more about these people. Peter Waldo, 1140 to 1218. He was a French relig uh, sorry, religious reformer after whom a group of people were started called the Waldenians. Waldenians. Now, they still exist today, apparently. There's about 45,000 of them still in the world. So this group of people, it, it, he, he started a movement of God. These movements of God happen when the church becomes so stuck and it's so set in its structures that, that God moves upon certain people to cause great thrust to, to change things. He sent out disciples called poor men to read to the common people the Bible. Uh, he did it without any ecclesiastical authority. And, of course, you can imagine he was excommunicated. Anyone who caused any trouble to the church was either burnt at the stake, executed, or uh, if they saved their lives, they were they were just excommunicated from the church. But he was the first of the reformers, as it were. Some of these names you'll know, some of them you won't. John Wycliffe, 1330 to 1384, an influential dissident. He was a Catholic, of course, like all people in those days, but he was an important person who was moving before Protestantism really came into being. But, but he was working under the, the power and the inspiration of God. And he, too, sent preachers out throughout our country to preach. And, of course, he translated the scriptures for us into English. Part of this whole reformation move of God. Another man was called John Huss. He was a Czech, uh, Czechoslovakian, uh, a theologian. He was executed, a dissident like uh, Wycliffe, but he was executed for what he did. He translated the Bible into his language, which wasn't uh, really appreciated by the Catholic Church 
at that time. We move on then to Martin Luther, uh, 1483 to 1546. Uh, he was really considered as the one who brought in the Reformation, but there were many other men that God was moving on in this time, bringing revivals all over Europe uh, to bring about a change. And people gathered behind these people. They were like mini revivals. And of course, what, what Luther did, he started a revival in his own day, translating uh, the Bible in, into uh, German at the time. And uh, he brought out, of course, this, this doctrine, this teaching that salvation is by faith alone. And uh, it's, there's nothing else to be added to it. The, the Bible is an authority in itself. And also the great teaching on the priesthood of all believers. He wanted to abolish the priesthood and all its corruption and lies that was in it. Although himself, he stayed on a priest until the day he died. We move on then to another man called Zwingli. He was a Swiss reformer. So we see these reformers were all over Czechoslovakia, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Switzerland. It was a move of God over a fairly extended period of time where God was bringing a change in the church. He was doing something special in the church. And as these men were responding to what God was teaching them or calling them to do, People gathered around them. They were like mini revivals all over the place. Zwingler, as I said, was a, a reformer, and from him came the Anabaptists, and then from them came two other groups you might know, the Amish and the Mennonites. And uh, uh, he, again, uh, was being a transformation to the church. Of course, the truth was in the Reformation, God was establishing the fact that men and women were saved through faith in Christ alone. All the religious trimmings that had locked the thing in were being broken down by God. Then we read about a man called Calvin, 1509 to 1564. He was a Frenchman, lived in Switzerland. Uh, he had his own uh, teaching. I mean, uh, we still talk about people being Calvinists today. He was a great teacher in the Reformed Church. The main thrust then of these revivals over this fairly extended period of, of time was to bring about the truth that men and women are saved through Christ alone, through his death on the cross and through faith in him. So that was the movement of God. It came out of the dark ages where nothing was happening and the whole thing was locked down by Catholicism. It came as a, as a fresh movement of God. God was starting to move again throughout the world. The second great movement of God is what we call the Great Awakening. It wasn't now that only that men must be born again of the Spirit of God, they must have faith in Jesus Christ, but this movement of God was that everyone should be saved. There was an attitude, although that we were justified by faith, that was good, but not that everyone should be saved. You wouldn't go to Africa or India or any of these weird places where there were lots of evil or demon gods. You wouldn't go there 
because maybe salvation was for the European. Maybe these people were only the ones that were selected by God and you wouldn't go to the heathen nations. But God was waking the church up again. It was reforming it again, but this time it was called a great awakening that the gospel was for everyone and should go throughout the world. This happened between the periods of 1624 and the present day. So for a good 400 years, we've had this uh, awakening where the gospel has been taken throughout the world. God moved powerfully in a number of lives. The first one I've got here is George Fox, uh, 1624. He started a religious society of friends. We know it better by the name the Quakers. He rebelled against authority both in the land and in the church because often the church dominated the politics of the land as well. He, he preached a, a totally uncompromising gospel that men should come back to God and dedicate themselves to God in a real way. Revival always does this. It is a byproduct that people are saved through a revival. God's purpose of revival is to get the church back on track. And when the church is on track, then people get saved. Have you ever thought why so few people get saved? So few people get saved. I was a pastor for 40 years. I saw few people saved in comparison to what God can do in one day in a revival. These people were radical. Another man I want to uh, mention here is Philip Spenner. Now, you've got a typo error there. I called him Spencer. Sorry about that. That's not his name. His name is Spenner. He was the father of uh, pietism. He was a German, 1670. He began small groups. Can you believe it? 300 years ago, they started fellowship groups, hubs, whatever you want to call them. They started them 300 years ago. He didn't form new churches. He said what we should see is little churches within churches. He believed that we should have an apostolic type of Christianity. When people talk of apostolic, what they're saying is look at the book of Acts and that's what Christianity should look like. It should look like what it looks in the book of Acts. So th this was another uh, great man who, who believed that everyone should be saved and everyone should be engaged in the work of, of bringing the lost. Another man I need to mention is Zindensorf, Nicholas Zindensorf, 1700 to 1760, a German, uh, a reformer and a leader of the Moravian church. He believed in world mission. He was a great pioneer for seeing missionaries go out and taking the gospel to every person in the world. Quite a radical way of thinking for the church. The church was only for the educated. It was only for a certain group of people, but he never believed that. He started a prayer meeting. Now, you've never been to a prayer meeting like this one because it lasted 100 years. He started a prayer meeting that never stopped. It prayed day and night, 24 hours, for 100 years. I mean, what a prayer meeting to go to. I'm, I, I'm sure at times it was, it was hard work. Other times it was really exciting. 
But they prayed and prayed and prayed and raised up people again and again and again and sent them out all over the world to preach the gospel to everyone. Jonathan Edwards is another man who is renowned in the Great Awakening. He's probably considered America's most important theologian, is one of the fathers of what we call the Great Awakening in America in 17, the 1700s. I don't know whether you would have enjoyed his preaching. He believed that we were terrible, wicked, awful sinners, and God was a really angry God. Oh, it must have burnt your ears just listening to the man preach, but he was powerfully used of God. Now, what I've discovered, if, you've, if I've read about these people, and I encourage you to read about these people from your history, they're your ancestors who went before you. You're thinking some of them have some real weird thoughts, weird ideas, weird doctrine, some of them, but God used them powerfully to, to move the church forward. We, we come to one now that we would think, uh, well, he's a good Englishman, John Wesley. John Wesley was from the Church of England because from, from his, uh, his radical preaching and his radical ways, the, the, the Methodist movement came from the Church of England. He didn't particularly want to start a, a new movement, what he wanted to do was change the one that he was already in, because it's very difficult to put new wine in an old wineskin. And often what you'll find is that something breaks forth, because if it doesn't move off and do something new, you'll ruin both the old and the new. They can't seem to work it together. And so that's just the way it is. And so that was John Wesley. I'm always impressed being someone who enjoys preaching myself, he preached 15 sermons a week on average. 15 a week, just imagine it. He preached over 40,000 sermons. I've estimated I've probably preached about 4,000. He preached 40,000. It's just incredible. He traveled 250,000 miles. Or you say, well, that's not far, but they didn't have planes and they didn't have cars. So if he wasn't walking, he was on a horse, 250,000 miles. He brought religion or Christianity to the masses, to the ordinary people, preaching in factories, preaching in fields. He wouldn't go into the churches. Why? Because the churches wouldn't accept him. So he found himself being thrust out by God, taking the gospel to everybody. The great awakening was God saying the gospel is for the whole world. It's for everybody. Uh, he had a colleague in John Whitfield. Now, John Whitfield never preached as much as Wesley did, but he was apparently a lot better. People enjoyed him more. Now, if you ever see pictures of, of Whitfield, it's quite off-putting because he's cross-eyed. So he's looking at you, and I can imagine looking at him in the pulpit, and he's cross-eyed. He's never looking. He looks, and even in the pictures, he looks a little bit weird, a little bit scary, a little bit frightening. But he preached with such fervor, with such passion, that people just flooded to him. He was, he was renowned in this country and renowned in the United States as well. He traveled to the States seven times. Now, I'm saying if you do that in a plane, some people do that every year because he would have had to take voyages and he kept going back. He preached about something like 18,000 sermons. He preached once 
in America to 25,000 people at once without a megaphone, without any amplification. I mean, it's just incredible, these people. And people flocked to hear them because why? It was a revival. The movement of God, the power of God was just causing people to want to know, to want to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another name of this period is a man called Charles Finney, an American, a Presbyterian. He was the leader of probably what is called the Second Great Awakening in America in the 1830s. He was the father of modern uh, revivalism. Another man, D.L. Moody, an American young man working a shoe shop. Uh, he wasn't saved until he was about 18, 20 years of age. He came to the United Kingdom in 1872. He was here for two years. He preached in York, Sunderland, Newcastle, Edinburgh, Glasgow, London, Liverpool. He filled the Crystal Palace and outside there were still 20 to 30,000 people who came to hear him that couldn't get in. He was powerfully used of God. Another man is R.A. Torrey. He started life as an evangelist. In 1902, in his 40s, he went to Australia and God used him powerfully to save many Australians. Eventually, he came back from Australia and he hit England uh, in 1905, when the Welsh Revival was happening, one million people attended his meetings in the Royal Albert Hall. One million. They must have been Londoners that turned out to hear this man. And of the one million that listened, 17,000 on his few visits to this country, 17,000 were converted to Christ. The Great Awakening. And, of course, we, we come to the, the one you all know about, which is Billy Graham. Uh, there's, there's scores and scores that you can look up and read about that, that did tremendous things for God all over the world in these periods of time. But Billy Graham, born in uh, 1918 and died just a couple of years ago in 2018. We know he was a Baptist, a Southern Baptist. Uh, the statistics said that he preached to 210 million people. He preached to 210 million people in 185 different countries. There's only about 240 countries in the world. 185 countries. 3.2 million people responded to his appeal to be born again. 3.2 million. And his lifetime audience on TV was 2.2 billion people heard him preach on radio or television. You see God moving with tremendous power through the world. And, and others say, listen, there were, there, were, um, there were evangelists that did more than Billy Graham did. And, and sometimes we've never heard of these people. And yet when we read their stories, it's just, it's just mind-blowing what God is doing, how God moves through these different movements. So the first movement of God was the Reformation, telling people, you must be born again. You must be born again. The second move of God was that everyone in the world 
should be brought into the kingdom, a great awakening, a great thrusting forward of evangelism. The third movement of God was the movement of the Holy Spirit. The movement was sent by God for the church to rediscover a truth, a truth that it needed to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit to live on a daily basis. We need the Holy Spirit in us if we are to live as Christ, as God expects us to live. The movement dates back to 1792 and has continued on to 1980. The vanguard of this particular Holy Spirit movement, led in 1792 by a man called Edwin Orr. Interesting man. He started a school uh, of the prophets. He was, he was a convinced believer that the, the Pentecostal phenomena of everyone speaking in a foreign language, a language they've never learned speaking in tongues, was for all the Christians. Well, in 1792, that didn't go down too well. In fact, as far as the London Presbytery, because he was a Scotsman, spent time in Scotland and in London, the London Presbytery excommunicated him for some of his thoughts and some of his preachings, and he was disposed, uh, di sorry, disposed, deposed as, a, as a, a Scottish preacher in Scotland. So didn't go down too well. Now, what I've realized as I've read the history of these people uh, for some time now, they came under tremendous persecution. They were either burnt at the stake or excommunicated or, or thrown out of something. It was the enemy all the time coming and bringing pressure on these men of God and on the movements of God. I want to mention someone else, Charles Parham, 1873 to 1929. He was called the father of modern-day Pentecostalism. He started ministering at the age of 15. His emphasis was on holiness. If we walked in a holy way of living, then the Holy Spirit could then come upon us. There was a sort of an idea that if you didn't live holy and pure lives, the Spirit of God could not come upon you. Well, I don't think we'd follow uh, Parham's teaching quite the same. He started a Bible school and it was free. Uh, uh, people didn't have to pay anything for it. And he had one night, he had a, what they called a, a waiting meeting. Uh, and there were about 75 from his class that were there. And he went and prayed for all these people. And it says a number of the ladies started speaking in a language that was like Chinese. Well, of course, he knew what that was. And one of the people that came from his Bible school was a man called William Seymour. And we know him because he's famous for the Azusa Street Revival. But uh, William Seymour was black. And so he wasn't allowed to sit in the classroom with all the other students. Isn't that horrifying? Okay, so God could use powerfully men and women who are so right on some things, but so wrong on something else. So it, listen, when God starts to move through somebody, don't think they have to be perfect. Their, their teaching can be really wonky in some places, 
But, but God seems to override all that. He's looking for vessels that are prepared and, and he wants to flow through them even in spite of their problems or their difficulties or their misunderstandings or their dodgy theology. He moves through them anyway. Then we come to Evan Roberts, 1879 to 1951. We've mentioned him quite a lot, the one who was a pioneer for the the, the, the Welsh Revival, and that man, William Seymour, who was part of Charles Parham's Bible School, an African-American. He pastored the mission in Azusa Street. It was called the Apostolic Faith Gospel Mission. He was consumed with a passion for God. He prayed, it says, for five hours every day for a period of two and a half years. Listen, that's not an easy thing to do. That has to be God-inspired. That has to be God-anointed. You can't just say, well, I think I'll dedicate my whole life to prayer. You can't do it. God has to do something in you and through you and call you to do that sort of thing. So I'm not putting anything on you. You must respond to God in the way that the Holy Spirit calls you and draws you to himself as you yield to him and you do what he wants you to do you're going to be part of bringing in possibly the next tremendous movement of god so it was through seymour's mission there in azusa street that the great pentecostal outpouring it was almost like a second pentecost and it went through from los angeles throughout the whole world and touched many nations of the world i've got one now for you ladies because it's not right we always read about what the the men did how wonderful and great the men were well there were some wonderful women around at this time as well amy semple mcpherson she was a canadian lady she was a missionary for some years She's 1890 to 1944. She was one of the first female evangelists. She founded a movement called the Four Square Gospel Church. Jesus Christ, Savior, Healer, Baptizer, and Coming King. She preached every night in her church. Every night she preached. And on a Sunday, 16,000 people would turn out to her meetings just to hear what she had to say powerfully used of God so between 1940 and the year 2000 there's been this tremendous uh, movement of the the result of the baptism in the Holy Spirit that has spurned lots of other movements let me just remind you of the few of them the healing movement in 1946 People like William Bramham. Now, if you want to read a book about healing, you read about this man, William Bramham. He was the number one when it comes to healing. I have these, uh, uh, there's four or five volumes, uh, short volumes of this book. This man's story is something else. It will blow your socks off without a shadow of a doubt if you read what this man knew and experienced he wasn't a Bible teacher. He wasn't a theologian, but he had a tremendous, beyond anyone else's anointing that I've ever heard or read about, tremendous anointing from God. Aura Roberts is another man. Catherine Coleman is another, a woman this time. A.A. A. Allen was another. Aura Roberts, he conducted 300 
major healing crusades in his lifetime. He prayed for over one million people to be healed. The anointing of God was powerfully upon him. He received in the mail over five million pieces of literature, uh, letters requesting that he would pray for them for healing. And this went on and on for years. Millions and millions of people wrote to him. That's the healing movement of 1946. Then we have an, another group that was spurned from the Pentecostal revival called the Latter, Day, Latter Rain. Uh, it was in 1948. There was a group of Christians that believed in the last times God would come with such power upon the church that they would be so filled with the spirit, be like Christ himself, filled without measure. Then we move on to the charismatic movement. We might know something about this in, in our own experience. Started in the 1960s. 1965, there was the body life movement. In 1965, also, there was the faith movement. People like Hagen and Copeland and Joyce Meyer and Benny Hinn and all these names. Now, you might say, well, I'm not quite sure if I agree with everything they say. Listen, the truth is you don't agree with anybody. If you listen to someone sufficiently long enough, you will find something that you don't agree with, okay? So we have to look for what God is doing through vessels that are imperfect and see the hand of God and what God is doing. Don't swallow everything they're saying. Don't swallow everything they're doing. But stand back, remember. Say little. Keep watching. Keep quiet. Don't judge and you'll, you'll see the hand of God maybe uh, later in years what God was doing. Then we have a group called the Third Wave. Uh, you might all be third wavers. I don't know. You say, what's the third wave? What's the first and second wave, Phil? Well, the first, the first wave was the Pentecostal outpouring in 1904. I don't think any of you were around in 1904, so you wouldn't be a first waver. You might be a second waver. That was the, in the 1980s, you came into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Between the 1960s and 1980s, there was the charismatic renewal, which was basically the Spirit of God moving through the established denominations. Then we had the third waivers. The third waivers were people who got influenced in the evangelical church. That might be some more of you now. Uh, Influenced by people like John Wimber and Peter Wagner and people like this. So you're either a first waiver, Pentecost 1904. You're the, uh, the charismatic movement, which is the second wave, 1960 to 1980. From 1980 onwards, you're a third waiver. You've come in to this. But see, they're waves after waves after waves. They are movements and thrusts forward of the church and some of them encapsulate revivals and some don't. So some of them are just God expanding his work and you wouldn't describe it as a revival and yet other places you might say, God is doing this, the thing here that looks like a revival. So now that moves us on to the fourth movement. The fourth movement, what, what, what could happen in the fourth movement? So we've seen Reformation, that men must be born through faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
The second movement is the thrust that everyone in the world should be saved, the great awakening movement. We see the third movement is the coming of the Holy Spirit energizing Christians, the movement that we should be filled with the Spirit. We should hunger for the apostolic type church, the church that we saw in the book of Acts. We shouldn't accept anything less than that because that's what the Holy Spirit has come to energize us with. And now the fourth movement. The fourth movement has been called the Father's Love. Again, significant individuals have been moved upon by the Spirit of God to bring this movement forward. Sometimes we've just seen teachers or conferences. Other times we've seen revivals where this teaching has gone on. It emphasizes the loving Father wants us to experience his love on a daily basis. You see how, it's, how we're growing and being brought closer to God. We must be born again. We must evangelize the world. We must be filled with the Spirit. And we must now appreciate the Father's love for us. Particular people that he's used here, Ian Thomas, Christ living through us. That's what his main thrust was for teaching. Another man called Jack Winter, he emphasized the Father's love. Another man that you might have heard of, I had the privilege of spending a week with this man, Floyd McClung, uh, 1945, he was born, he's still alive today. He wrote a book called The Father Heart of God. James and Denise Jordan from New Zealand, they started what was called the Father Heart Ministry. And John and Carol Arnott, they pastored the Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship, where we talk about the Toronto Blessing. That was the name that the English press gave to that movement of God, 1994. A sovereign outpouring of the Spirit of God on this community uh, in Canada. The teaching was primarily on the Father's love. It was on grace. It was on forgiveness. It was, if you had gone to the revival, some of the things that you would have seen was God's love uh, poured out upon his people. There was ecstatic joy. People laughed and laughed and laughed at the presence of God. People said, they shouldn't be laughing. We don't mind them crying, but we don't want them laughing. The Spirit of God would come because he was showing people the Father's heart, the Father's love. People were being slain by the Spirit. Many times uh, you'd either be in a line and find yourself on your back or you'd be praying for people and people would be falling over all over the place. I mean, it was quite dangerous at times, people crashing around all over the place. Uncontrollable laughter. Emotional and physical euphoria. It was a hallmark of God pouring out his love upon his children. Other people, Peter Jackson, Ed uh, Pyrek, and Jack Frost, people who have emphasized and God has moved upon them. Now, there has been a number of revivals in this fourth move of God. I've already mentioned Toronto, 1994. Holy Trinity Brompton, 
They had a real experience of the power of God. I remember picking up the Daily Mirror one day and it had pictures on the front cover of queues and queues of people queuing up, trying to get into Holy Trinity Brompton. It was spurned from Toronto, and yet God did tremendous things there. Pensacola was another place where God uh, poured out his love in 1995. Smithton, uh, this was in Missouri in America. It's just a small church. It's just in the middle of Sticksville, really, 180 people. But in the three or four years that the Spirit of God came upon that fellowship, it had 250,000 visitors to this tiny, remote little church. Sunderland in 1995, I had the pleasure of going there. So I went to Toronto, Holy Trinity. I went to Sunderland. Yeah, I'm a revival chaser. I don't mind admitting it. If God's going to pour out his spirit, I want to get under some of it and feel it and know it and experience it. And if it can change and revolutionize my life, I want it. I'm not going to sit in Hastings thinking, oh, why doesn't God come and do it here? If he's doing it somewhere else, get there, get under it. It only costs you an airfare to go somewhere like this and really enjoy it. Pasadena, there was another move of God in 1995. And the last one, I went, I went to this place as well, Redding, California, 2000, an outpouring of the spirit. Bill Johnson, you might know that name as well. It doesn't matter who the men and their names are. They need to be respected and honored and listened to. Uh, again, if it's not everything that you can agree with, that's fine, but don't be judgmental against what God is doing. It's been a bit quiet for the last 20 years. All over the world, it's been a bit quiet. There are some revivals, there are some movements going on, but not as much happening in the West. As you study the years that these movements happened, and when God was working in the world, it creates for us a bit of a picture. It seems that the revivals got closer and closer. When I say the revivals, I mean the movements of God got closer. The revivals are what happened in a movement. So we've looked at four movements. The, uh, the Reformation, where everyone must be born again by faith in Jesus Christ. The Great Awakening, which was a movement that said the whole world should be evangelized. The Holy Spirit outpouring, where God is saying, you need to be full of my spirit. And then the fourth movement was the movement of where God poured his love into his church. If you draw up a little graph or chart the way I have, you see that these movements get closer and closer together. Let me just run through this for you. I don't think we need to look at the chart. You'll get it. In the first column, we have the movement is the Reformation. The place is Wittenberg. The year is 1517. It's in the country of Germany. And the principal person is Luther, Martin Luther. 226 years later, we have the movement called the Great Awakening. John Wesley is the key person. Aldersgate is a key place. 1743, England. The third movement is the second, what I've called the second Pentecost. William Seymour, Azusa Street. 
1906. So between the Great Awakening and Azusa Street, there's just 163 years. And this is in the US of A. The fourth movement is the Father Heart of God. John Arnott, Toronto in Canada, 1994. Between Azusa Street and the Toronto Blessing, we have 88 years. The fifth movement of God. I think there is going to be a fifth movement. It is going to be the movement that draws up or calls out the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. If it's diminishing each year, and we, we go by the figures here, and I'm not, I'm not, don't, don't quote me on this, but it seems that the next movement's going to get a bit closer. We're looking at the year about 2040. It'll be 40 years since the, the Father Heart of God movement, the Bride of Christ. Who are going to be the key people? Where is it going to break out? In which country is it going to happen first? Where is God going to move most powerfully? Because we've seen him move in Germany, in England, in the USA, in Canada. Where will he move next? The fifth movement then. Every revival of God, every great movement of God that contains revivals brings us closer to the return of Christ. We all believe that Christ is coming back to this earth. There will be an end date. It will all finish. And we have been moving through these thousands of years to the culmination of this one event. The father has a passion for his son. The passion that he has for his son is that he will have a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. And the bride will be ready. Is the fifth movement of Christ where the bride is made perfect, the bride is made ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 and 7, it says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. The bride, the church of Jesus Christ, the church that's been growing up now for these 2,000 years is reaching the point where this, this beautiful woman is ready to become the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, ready now in this, this last period, this last time. The last movement of God was the Father's love. The Father preparing our hearts to be the bride of Christ. But that wasn't the final move. The final move was that the church would be ready to be the bride of Christ. Let me give you a picture of the church that's given to us in Ephesians. Ephesians 5 now, 25 to 31. She set apart the bride of Christ, the church, is set apart and cleansed by God's word. She's glorious and without blemish, and she is holy. She looks like Jesus. She understands that she is truly loved. She is one 
with Christ in purpose. We have to, in these last days, re-emphasize the word because the bride will be cleansed by the word. She will live a holy life. She will be loving and compassionate to all like Jesus Christ. She will know that she is in Christ and she will know that Christ in her is the hope of glory. Has the movement started already? Has the fifth movement started? I just wonder if Hillsong, if you listen to some of the Hillsong messages, they talk much about the bride and the preparing of the bride. The final phase then, it is the prayer that Jesus prayed for all his believers. It's got to come about because Jesus prayed it to the Father. He only prayed the will of the Father. So what Jesus prayed must come about. Listen to what he prayed in John 17, 21 to 24, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He's praying that the church in these last days will be just as united to Christ as Christ is united to his Father, he in the Father and the Father in him. May they, all, may they also be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Jesus longs to see the completion of his bride, his beautiful church. The final phase, the final movement of God is to bring the church of Christ to that position where she can stand beside Jesus Christ and to be the bride. For 2,000 years through all these these different movements of God, these different ages, we've seen this, this fledgling child of a church grow, 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 grow into being a mature, loving person that can literally stand beside Christ himself. The church will be one, knowing that God is with her. The church will stand out as glorious, his glory in the church will do this. The church will be ready to be with Christ and to be presented to the Father. Christ will present his church, the bride, to the Father. For 2,000 years, the bride has been preparing herself. With each forward movement, God has been preparing her for her husband. See, she wasn't ready 600 years ago. She wasn't ready 200 years ago. The church is not ready yet. The church has one final movement to go through, which is to be prepared as a bride. Over the centuries then, each born-again believer has played their part 
in making themselves ready, embracing the forward movements of God, all the movements you have embraced. You know that you're justified by faith. You know that you should evangelize the world. You know you should be full of the spirit and living in an apostolic way. You know about the father heart of God and how you reach out to the poor and love the poor and want to love other people. The final thing is this move into holiness where we become the perfect bride of Christ. It's possible that the next great move of God will be the final move when the bride will be made ready. It is as though a child has been growing up into a beautiful young woman ready to be married to a husband. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to our website www.ariseministry.org.uk to sign up to our new module starting next Monday titled Healing. Also, if you would like to make a secure online donation to Arise Ministry, you can do that on our website. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.